Hi and welcome to the St Saviour's Finsbury Park podcast. Our vision is to be a church alive in God's love to serve the city. And we hope this teaching helps you to know God and serve him more wherever you've been uniquely placed. Let's jump in. So we're looking at the life of Abraham and we're in the third week of a six-week series uh, called The Gift of Faith in Challenging Times. So we're considering this man's story. Uh, we're saying that you can't really understand world civilization if you don't understand this man's story. All the great religions of the world trace uh, many of their narratives and their roots back to this man. Um, so for that alone, it's interesting. But more than that, uh, St. Paul in the New Testament describes Abraham as the man of faith. And this is a season at church at St. Saviour's uh, where we're, we're wanting to up the ante. We're wanting to increase the temperature and we're wanting to ask the Holy Spirit, Look, what does it mean for us to grow as a community in faith? You know, to take your word seriously, to exercise mustard seed faith that we might see mountains move. You fill in the gaps in terms of what, what that means, but we want to take faith seriously. So who better than to look at the uh, father of faith, one of the great patriarchs, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, the, the man who St. Paul describes as um, the man of faith. So week one uh, was called the power of God's call. Let me just, week one was about the call. Uh, last week, uh, we looked at the land, uh, this week, we're looking at how Abraham faces a, a massive crisis in his life. This, this, this whole chapter that we just heard so beautifully read by Ed um, is really a crisis moment in Abraham's life. Uh, next week, we're looking at possibly one of the great focal points of the gospel in the whole of the Old Testament. Um, it's called Abraham and the Torch. More on that next week. Let me not get bogged down on that now, but it's an incredible chapter and um, you should be looking forward to it. If you're not, why not? Uh, go read it. It's incredible. Um, the week after that, week five, we're looking at Abraham and the promise, how God promises Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, old in years, a son through whom his family and through his family, the nation of Israel, and through the nation of Israel, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Um, that's, a, that's a huge part of the story. And then in week six, as I've said, we'll sum up. I'm sort of increasing the pressure on myself for week six because I said that three weeks in a row I'm not quite sure what it will look like to sum up we're going to gather together some of the big themes of this story and just reflect on them chew over them in week six um, so just quickly by way of a little deeper dive in terms of recap week one we looked at Genesis 12 and uh, the title of that talk was Abraham and the call and we looked at the power of God's call we said three things God's call is powerful because it comes from God to us in other words it's sheer it's ultimate, not penultimate. It's objective, not subjective. Um, it's a gift received, therefore, not a right earned. God's call is something that's given to us from God. It is unbelievably powerful. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We receive it by grace. Numbers, the second thing we saw is that Abraham is disorientated by his call. He's led out away from his family and his friends, from all that's familiar, from social and political influence and material affluence into a land that God says, I will show you. So it disorientates Abraham. And we're saying that when God's call comes to you from the Lord, it can feel disorientating because God, by his spirit in his kindness, will not leave you where you are because he wants to orientate you around his life. He wants you to move away from orientating, trying to orientate God around your life. It could be disorientating. 
In week two, we, we considered Genesis 13, uh, and that was looking at this amazing story of Abraham offering two pieces of land to Lot. One is like the Garden of Eden, the other is barren, and he's very happy with that. We said three things, that God's presence is life-giving uh, because God is the source of life. Simple, right? God's presence is life-giving because God is the source of life. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, I think, um, uh, if you want to know me, you have to be born again from above. In other words, you have to experience new life, not the same life that you had, touched up around the edges, given a bit of an upgrade. No, a completely new life that's like biological birth. That, 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 that the most significant date in your life now no longer is the date of your biological birth. It's the date that you were baptized into my name. That's the kind of life we're talking about. And it's why we say at St. Saviour's regularly, we would prefer to have a church that's messy like a nursery, but bubbling with life, rather than neat and tidy like a graveyard, uh, but is governed by death. That sounds punchy, but that's, that's what we're going after. Life is messy. When new life b- bursts out, it's inconvenient, messy, and, and can be a bit smelly as well. Um, but we want to have that kind of culture where we're going after the new life of God. Secondly, we said in that last week, God's presence isn't only life-giving because God is a source of life, it's liberating. It sets us free because God's presence fills the whole earth with glory. Therefore, there's no way you can go, however barren, sparse, scary, lifeless it feels, there's nowhere in, on the earth that you can go that isn't pregnant with the life of God. And therefore you are free to pursue God's call uh, anywhere he calls you to go, rather than saying, well, I couldn't go there because that place looks a bit barren, but that place looks incredible. Lord, you must be calling me over here. No, we're free to follow God's call all the days of our life without fear. Isn't that incredible? Because his presence fills the whole earth. And this week, Genesis 14, which I'll say for the third time, Ed, you read beautifully, my friend. Um, We're looking at the power of God's self-sufficiency. And I want to make three uh, quick-ish points. Uh, Firstly, um, Abraham faces a crisis in this chapter. And the first point I want to make is that crisis creates a conflict. Uh, and, and the conflict is between what Abraham could be tempted to imagine, which is that he's in control of life, uh, and which is that life is in his hands, uh, and, and what's always true, which is that he's not in control of life, and life really isn't in his hands. That's the first point. Crisis creates a conflict for Abraham between uh, what he imagines and is tempted to hope for, I'm in control, and the reality, which is that he's really not. Secondly, the crisis creates an opportunity for Abraham to worship God more wholeheartedly than he ever has done in his life before. And in that place of wholehearted worship and devotion to God, when his back's against the wall, And he's surrounded by his enemies to know even more of the beauty and the blessing and the power of God's holy name. So crisis creates a conflict. Crisis creates an opportunity. And the last point I just want to make is that crisis leads us uh, to Jesus, who alone depends entirely and fully on God in the ultimate moment of crisis, which is the cross. So why don't we pray as we begin. Um, Father, we're going after faith in this season. 
We feel we're always called as Christians to go after faith, but we, we feel particularly called as a church to chew on, meditate on, learn about, and then to practice what it looks like to be a community of faith. And I pray that as I offer these thoughts, um, you would take that which is of me and just let it fall away, and there'll be plenty of that. But I pray, Lord, that where your spirit moves and a word lands on our hearts, pour your spirit, pour, pour fuel on that fire, pour water on that seed, and make that to grow into a harvest, Jesus talks about, 30, 60, 100 times that we could not possibly imagine that which you long to pour out upon us by your presence in this season. Make us to be a community that bears up under the weight of your glory, that carries faith, that carries faith, that we would know the gift of it in this season of uncertainty that we're passing through. Amen. So point one, crisis creates a conflict uh, between what Abraham could be tempted to imagine, which is that he's in control of his life, and that life is in his hands. And what's always true, which is that he's really not. Now, Abraham could rightly be tempted to think that he's done really, really well. We, we saw in chapter 13 that he's got so many goats, sheep, there was another bit of livestock, cows, and loads of silver and loads of gold, so much so uh, that he and his cousin Lot can't uh, can't exist on the same piece of land. In other words, he's phenomenally, materially prosperous. And he might say to himself, listen, I, I'm, I'm incredible. We don't read that in the text. I'm now channeling my inner Abraham, and that's a dangerous thing to do because we don't see that. And it may well be that he didn't say this, but if I were Abraham, this is an interesting thought experiment. I wasn't expecting to go here. But if I were him, I might say, listen, Lord, look at the faith that I've shown you took me, you called me out from a place of comfort and security and like identity where I was a someone and everybody knew me and my family and we represented something important in the world and you, took, you called me to a land that you would show, me, show you and Lord, I said yes. How, how incredible faithful am I? And in hostile territory, away from Haran, which is Abraham's hometown, in Canaan and then in Egypt and then back into Canaan, uh, I've been blessed mightily. How special am I? Abraham could be tempted to think that as he splits the land with Lot and he just sees how good and how materially blessed he is. I, I, I can imagine that there might have been part of him thinking, I've done well here. I'm in control of life. I've made it through the hard times. People say this all the time, don't they? Or maybe they don't, but here's something that I hear every now and again. People say, how are you? Yeah, how's life? And every now and again, people say, yeah, I'm winning. I'm winning at life. I don't know if you've heard that. Maybe it's just me. You hear that? You're like, I, I've got life down. Life is good. I am winning at life. And Abraham may well be tempted to give the answer. We don't read it in the text, but he might be given that answer. But then look what happens in Genesis chapter 14. All of his comforts and his material possessions and his wealth gets completely shattered by a regional geopolitical conflict. And if you read it carefully, and it is a tough passage to read, you have uh, four kings on one side called, here we go, Amraphel, Arioch, Kedorlaomer, 
and tidal. There's four kings on one side. And for 12 years, they've been in conflict, competition, and tension with neighboring kings and tribes, Bera of Sodom, Bersha of Gomorrah, and then Shinab, Shemabur, and Zoar. And for over a decade, like I say, it's been simmering. And then in the 13th year, it just breaks out. It's like someone's just lit the touch paper. And the whole of the region that Abraham, this nomad, this, you might say, migrant, this man who's passing through a land which is no land, a land which is no longer his home, dependent on the goodwill and the stability of the territory in which he, the Lord has asked him to pass through, the whole place just turns into effectively a bloodbath. Yeah, the, the, the kings, have they go to war. Not only that, but the year after the 13th year, we're told in the 14th year, those four kings, Kedorlaoma and his three buddies, which I won't repeat, they take, on, they take on four other kings. And these kings rule tribes called the Rephites, the Zuzites, the Emites, and the Horites in a place called Seir. And, and, they, and they just annihilate them. And then they turn back, we're told, and pass through a territory ruled by the Amalekites and the Amorites. And they take them on. And then they go to a place called the Valley of Sidim and they take on again Bera and Bersha of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the people who are associated with Bera and Bersha flee and they either end up, this is in the text, falling into tar pits, which I can imagine is a tough place to be, or fleeing to the hills. And in that moment of chaos, where the geopolitical, regional, fragile political truce that has held for 10 years, 11 years, 12 years is just shattered, Abraham's cousin Lot and his entire household are swept away. They're abducted. They're caught up in the conflict. And, uh, and they're gone. They're gone. For Abraham, this is, a, this is a catastrophic moment. This isn't like Abraham thinking, gosh, I, I, you know, I hope that doesn't happen, and then God sort of saves him in the moment of crisis. No, this is the catastrophe that he most fears. And he is stripped in this moment of any delusion or fantasy as to his own security, his own control, his own understanding of life. And he is forced in this moment into a position of utter and sheer and total dependence on God. Now listen, we do see Abraham demonstrating extraordinary faith in this chapter and we're gonna to come to that in a moment. But, but I'd love to just press pause right now and to feel the sheer horror and the fear and the terror that Abraham must have felt in this moment. It's absolute chaos and half his family's gone. So I don't know what the word crisis means for you this morning. Maybe you're not facing a crisis or you think life is, maybe you're winning at life. Um, but you may well be going through a moment of catastrophe. I don't know that. 
And I want to let you know that there is an encouragement and a grace in this story uh, that we see that God is still at work in Abraham's life. We see that God is still good. We see that God is still powerful. But yes, for Abraham, all of that must have felt far off in this moment, very far off. Abraham, again, might be tempted to think, well, that's all very well, Lord, that you called me from Haran. It's all very well that you've revealed your name to me. But right now, my cousin Lot and all of his household and all the people I love most dearly in my life have been taken off by the enemy and I have no idea where they are. Faith can feel frightening sometimes. Faith can feel very frightening sometimes. We worship an awesome God who is good and always good and makes all things good. We worship an awesomely faithful God who is faithful and always there and always with us. We, uh, we worship an awesomely powerful God who cannot uh, be beaten. He has won the victory in Christ. But what this chapter teaches us is that it's okay to be a believing Christian and to feel like you are in a valley of Sidim for a very long time. That's okay. It doesn't mean that God's gone. It doesn't mean that he's not here. It's the reality of the broken world we live in. I have three kids, boy, girl, girl, nine, seven, four, Benj, Immy, Beth. All three of their births, I made a bit of a fool of myself. I'm gonna start with the second one with Immy. We used to think, well, Anna used to think called a TENS machine, which is an electric shocker thing that sticks to your back and you can up the ante from one through 10. And it's used to distract you from the much more intense pain of giving birth, I'm told. I was asked to pass the TENS machine during the birth of Immy to the midwife. But accidentally, when I passed it over, the nodes hit my arm and the current that was on 10, then started bolting through my body. So in a moment when my wife really needed me and the midwife needed me just to be like good now, um, my body was shaking with however many volts are going through it and I literally began to cry like a child and say, help me. <laughs> that happened. With our third kid, Beth, and I was giving birth to Beth and um, during the contractions, um, which would carry on for a couple minutes, two or three minutes. Um, we were really into a comedy series called Fleabag at the time. So what we did was, and this was actually with your full um, permission, was me, but we would pause Fleabag and wait for the contraction to finish, and then we would roll the, the film. Looking back on it, I'm ashamed that we did that, but we did, and, and that wasn't a, a cool moment. But with our first child, Benji, um, I went to every appointment at UCLH where we had planned to have uh, him and I had taken like pages of notes in terms of how long to wait and when to go into hospital and what to put in the bag by the door and etc 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 but on the morning Benji came much faster than we expected and we realized after a short while that um, we, we weren't going to make it to the hospital in time but we decided to, to go for it anyway 
And um, I remember we were living on the fifth floor of a block of flats at the time, came down the lift, and at the bottom of the lift, um, Benji was crowning. And uh, it was a freezing cold November day, and we went out onto the road. I called an ambulance. They said, where are you? We had moved into the flat the day before, and I didn't know where we were. So I said, I, I actually don't know where we are. <laughs> And I said, there's a piano shop, and just started naming things around me. There's a, like a news agent, and that just didn't help. Then I called a taxi company called Addison Lee. Uh, they said, yeah, we don't, we're not going to, um, you know, we're not going to help you because um, it could be messy. Uh, so I got desperate, and I saw a London cab driving down the road, and I stepped out into the road, stopped the cab, and uh, Gary, who is now a, a friend of ours, who we didn't know at the time, stepped out and just rolled his eyes, um, but graciously uh, allowed Anna to go in the back of the cab. As we were driving along the road two minutes from UCLH, Benji arrived and I, I delivered him. Um, but here's the thing I want to sort of dwell on. Um, um, there was a moment where Benji was born uh, where he wasn't breathing. Now listen, that's standard and that's normal, I'm told, but I didn't know that at the time. So when he arrived and his body was sort of gray um, and he wasn't breathing for, I imagine, only a period of seconds, but it felt like minutes, potentially even hours in that moment. Um, all, the, all, of, all of the songs that I'd sung about the goodness of God, or all of the faith that I'd practiced throughout my life, um, or all of the churches I'd been a part of, that suddenly became real to me in a new way. Now, for me, that moment was a Valley of Siddim moment. That was a moment where faith felt really frightening and there was a question mark over, Lord, are you here? Are you with me? Are you good? Are you powerful? So I just want us to dwell there for a second and then we're going to move on. And I'd love to pray because I can't do the translation for you. Like life is complicated and really rough stuff happens. And when you're a Christian, you're not immune from that. Jesus comes into the world to be with us, and with us, he helps us discover the kingdom. But he doesn't come to the world to just extract us into this like immunized realm where all the brokenness of the world is somehow apart from us. And what the story of Abraham teaches us in Abraham 13 is that like I say, you can be a believing Christian for a very long time and feel like you're in the Valley of Siddim. And I just want to pray. It may be that you are in that place this morning. It may not be. But I want to pray that we as a church would, would grasp hold of the reality of the faith to which we're called. We're called to be in the world with Jesus, not, not in some special green room somewhere. So, Lord, um, thank you for this story. It is frightening, and we just want to name that. It's really frightening to see half of Abraham's family abducted. Um, we take comfort on one level from the fact that we see this unbelievable man of faith who Paul says, if you want to know what faith is like, look at Abraham. And yet his life at certain points was really, really hard. And I just want to pray you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit in this church and give us a faith that's real in the valley as it is on the mountaintops. And I pray that we'd be the kind of church that would know if someone's passing through the valley of Siddim and draw alongside them and encourage them.
And equally, I pray that would be the kind of church that if we're in the valley, uh, we'd be vulnerable and open enough to ask for help. Would you, would you pray with me? Would you stand with me in this moment? We pray this in your name. Amen. Second point, the crisis creates an opportunity for Abraham to worship God more fully, more deeply, more wholeheartedly in his life. And in that place of worship, to know more of the beauty and the blessing and the power of God's name. So Abraham mobilizes an army, as you do. We're told it was 318 people. That's a significant posse. And he pursues Lot, his cousin. He pursues the raiders and he wins the day. Gets them all back, all of their possessions and some. However, I want to suggest that's not the main point of this passage. There are plenty of examples in scripture of broken things staying broken. One of them would be King David when he loses his beloved son Absalom. And there's maybe very few points in scripture where more plaintive or melancholic or just a sad moment is when you hear David wailing for his son. We read in 2 Samuel 18 that the king, David, was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So I want to suggest that when we're in Genesis 14, if, I'm not, not being cynical on it, but if the only thing we take from this passage is that because Abraham trusted God, he was able to rally an army and win the day. If that's where we stop, I believe that we've missed a, a deeper and more important truth that the passage is trying to teach us. The point is that the crisis that Abraham faces reveals the content of his character. In other words, it reveals the state of his heart. And we know this from two things in the passage. Firstly, that his first move when he returns from having found and delivered Lot and his family, his first move is to offer God a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Uh, there's a strange entry stage left at this stage in the narrative of a man called Melchizedek. Not much is known about Melchizedek. He comes from Canaan, but we're told he's a high priest of the Lord. For the purposes of today, all we need to grasp hold of is he represents God. He, he's in a priestly capacity. And in his priestly capacity, he's representing the Lord. And Abraham's first move isn't to celebrate how powerful Abraham is, how the fact that he can rally 318 people, that he's performed a heroic task, that everyone should bring him bounty and glory and praise him. His first move is to offer a tenth of all his possessions to the Lord. We're told that he tithes 10% to Melchizedek. Isn't that interesting? His first move is to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. He could be tempted in a moment of crisis to think, I want to grasp hold of life even more. Life is chaotic. Life is terrifying. I'm going to keep hold of my material possessions and I'm going to make sure that never happens again. But he moves in the opposite direction. He, he, he allows his hands to be open, his heart to be softened, and he acknowledges that there is a force at work in his life called the Lord and he demands true worship and praise, even in moments of catastrophe. That's remarkable. And it's worth us grasping hold of that and noting it. The second move that Abraham makes is that he remains utterly dependent on God. 
When the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, Bera and, I um, can't remember the other guy's name, sorry, I should have written it down, Bersha, I think. Um, when they come to Abraham, they say to him, um, can, can we give you something just to honor you? Can, can we give you some like, you know, booty? And Abraham says to them, I won't take anything from anyone that would ever suggest that it wasn't the Lord who delivered me on this day. I don't want anyone ever to be able to say, Abraham was like really special. He was pretty clever. He was quite powerful. No, no, no. He says, you need to understand what's going on in this moment. I will not take, I will not take anything because I want to demonstrate to you and to myself that it is the Lord who delivered me today and no one else. Isn't that remarkable? I've said this every week and I'm gonna say it every week. The scheme that frames this whole narrative in Genesis, Abraham's story, goes like this. God says, get out to Abraham. Get out from your family, get out from your home, get out from everything that you know. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll show you later, just go. And then later God says, I'm gonna give you a son. And Abraham says, how? I'm old and my wife is barren. And God says, I'll show you later, just trust. And then finally God says to Abraham, go to the top of the mountain and put your son to death. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll show you later, just climb. In Hebrews, we're given a definition of faith and it goes like this. Faith gives substance to your hopes and convinces you of realities you don't yet see. In other words, if you're a man or a woman of faith, you have the ability to welcome the goodness of God and the power of God and the promises of God from far off, even though the place where you're actually standing may feel very, very, very far from God's goodness and his power and his kindness to us. Faith permits us to do that. And when Abraham is called and he says, I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know how you're going to do this, God. And I'm not quite sure even what it means. But you know what? I'm going to put my hand in your hand. And I will go and I will trust. That's what makes Abraham great. And the astonishing invitation of Christianity is to say, that's available for you, that kind of greatness. And it's available to me. Abraham is ordinary. Abraham lacks faith. When he's told he's going to have a son, he laughs. When he arrives in a hostile land called Egypt and he suddenly gets intimidated by the power and the authority of Pharaoh, as you would and as I would, he pretends that his wife Sarah is not his wife, she's his sister, and she permits Pharaoh to take her into his household. Abraham is a very ordinary man. But at certain key moments in this story, he exercises extraordinary faith. He's an incredible faith-filled man. And that should encourage us as well. If we're lacking faith this morning, if we're not sure what it looks like to exercise faith in this season, I love the idea of it, but I just don't have it. Abraham is an encouragement. Here is a, a very ordinary man, but who exercises extraordinary faith because he, it's faith in an extraordinary God. Jesus, in Mark chapter nine, is confronted by a father who's desperate for his son to be made well. And the father has clocked this much about Jesus. He knows that faith leads to fullness, healing, power. And he says to Jesus, listen, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, listen, I love my son so much. I can see that faith is important here, but I just want to let you know, I, I, I only have a little. And actually, I feel like I've got quite a lot of 
unbelief? Would you help me? And Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. And this text says this, immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my belief. If you lack faith this morning, if you don't think of yourself as a particularly faithful person, I want you to know that you're in great company with Abraham and this boy's father, that Jesus welcomes you today. You just need to ask and you will receive. So crisis creates a conflict between fantasy, I'm in charge of my life and all the good things that happen in my life are because of me, and reality, which is that we are never in control of our lives. There are forces at work in our lives that are way beyond us and ultimately God is sovereign. Secondly, the crisis creates also an opportunity to worship God more fully, more deeply, more wholeheartedly with our lives. And in that place of true worship, to know the beauty and the blessing of God's name. But lastly, as we've said every week, all of this should lead us to our knees. We shouldn't say, brilliant, I'm gonna go and implement this this week. Actually, the appropriate response, if you're listening and reading the text, is to say, I can't do that. I haven't got it in me. And the answer always is, no, you haven't. But there is one who has, and he calls you by name. And if you'll trust him, you too will become a person of greatness in the Christian sense of the word. Knowing what it means to serve others, to promote others above yourself, to worship the living God of heaven and earth in the valley of Siddim, as well as on the mountaintop. Crises lead us ultimately to Jesus who alone depends fully on God in the ultimate moment of crisis, which is the cross. It's not just his physical suffering. Theologians use the word ontological. Ontological just means a state of being. In other words, in, on the cross, it's not just that he has his hands pierced. It's that his soul is torn in two, ontologically from his father. That he suddenly doesn't know who he is. He's separated from his heavenly father. That's real fear, that's real terror, that's real stress. That's why we're told that Jesus even says, listen, is there any other way to his heavenly father? I, I, I know that I'm called to drink this cup of judgment and wrath, but, but is there any other way because I'm terrified? And that's why we're also told that he sweats and that he sweats blood because he's that scared. And yet he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. The challenge of this series and the invitation of this series is to ask the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the beauty of that. The degree to which you and I see the beauty of the one, Jesus, who suffers the ultimate crisis, the ultimate valley of Siddim, and yet who offers a true sacrifice of worship and thanksgiving and praise which is his own life so that you and I never have to the degree to which the spirit opens our eyes to him and his beauty and our ears to his shepherd's voice to that degree we will be a community of faith and we will see things that we cannot possibly imagine right now amen why don't we stand